The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Precision Team in AML, Exploring Pathologist-Informed Clinical Decisions in Challenging AML Settings. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XSA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining this activity. It's a pleasure to be with you today to talk about AML. With this presentation entitled The Precision Team in AML, Exploring Pathologist-Informed Clinical Decisions in Challenging AML Settings. It is a pleasure to be doing this alongside my friend and colleague, Dr. Naval Daver, who is an oncologist from the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Now I'm going to turn over to my colleague, Dr. Daver, and uh, ask him to maybe walk us through all the precision um, therapeutics that are now available for patients with AML and help us understand them as we embark on this discussion. Yeah, thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. Khoury. It's a pleasure to be here with you and uh, uh, very excited to, to see there's interest to learn more about leukemia therapies. And as you can see, there has been a uh, tremendous progress and approvals in the last five years. Uh, in fact, none of these agents uh, were approved prior to 2017. So in the last five, five and a half years, we have now 11, if I counted, drugs. Many of these are targeted therapies, IDH1 and 2 inhibitors, uh, drugs like ivocitinib, inositinib, uh, FLIT3 inhibitors, mitostorin, giltritinib, uh, quizartinib, which is a very powerful second-generation FLIT3 inhibitor, um, uh, like giltritinib, we hope will also get approved in the near future. And then we have novel therapies like BCL2 inhibitors, venetoclax, which as a single agent probably is one of the most powerful, impactful drugs combined with many modalities, hypomethylating agents, FLIT3 inhibitors like giltritinib, chemotherapy, and also new antibody formulations. So uh, this is, I think, just the beginning. I think there's a lot more um, coming. Cellular therapies are being developed, CD47 antibodies, new targeted therapies. So the point is that we really need to know the underlying target here to be able to optimally deliver these therapies to the um, individual patients. Now, all that being said, and there is progress and approval in, in new drugs and uh, understanding of translational pathways, mechanism resistance, a lot of this work is ongoing. We're heavily involved in a lot of it, but we still do not have great enrollment to clinical trials. Uh, as you see here, only about 15% of patients uh, with AML were enrolled on, uh, had a genomic report, in fact, and we know that the trial enrollment rates are even lower. So this is not in a, you know, decades ago. This is from 2011 to 2018. Now, yes, uh, this was kind of before all of the approvals came through, and uh, I would be hopeful that now with all of these targeted therapies, IDH1, FLIT3 inhibitors, CD33 inhibitors, others, that people will know that there's more clinical, practical, therapeutic decision-making implications and check the molecular testing more frequently, uh, but I still do not think it's going to be much higher than 50, 55%. So we still have work to do because you have the drugs that work well in a particular target, but if you don't know the target, then that drug will not have any uh, benefits. So this is a big area where um, we all, the hematopathologists, the uh, clinical investigators, oncologists, are trying to improve uh, access. And this is just showing the use 
of different types of therapies. We still see that intensive chemotherapy is being used uh, quite a bit. These are in younger adults. I do think that this pie chart is probably shifting over time. We know HMA-VEN is being used quite a bit. Uh, it was approved in 75 plus, but I do think that there's a lot of use in the 60 to 75. We see that both at our centers and referrals coming to us. But even in younger patients who have adverse cytogenetics, high-risk molecular, uh, there is use of that. So we will be talking a little bit uh, about that going forward. So with that kind of background into how we're going to be thinking about integrating targeted therapies for optimized personalized therapy for our AML patients, uh, I'm going to turn it back to you, uh, Joe. The key things we both want to discuss today are using cytogenetic molecular histopathological data for diagnosis and prognostic assessment, and then improving our understanding of baseline testing that is required by most uh, treating leukemia physicians for a new AML patient as well as focusing, going deep into some of the high-risk subsets of AML uh, and how we are approaching them with some innovative treatments, and then eventually uh, improving our interdisciplinary team uh, interactions and the best way to personalize management for AML. So with that, I will turn it back to you, Joe. Thank you, Nava. So we're going to start with this patient, uh, Thomas, who is a 70-year-old patient who presents to the clinic with loss of appetite, unexplained weight loss, bone and joint pain, abdominal swelling, fatigue, and low-grade fever. He had a CBC that showed leukopenia with a white blood count of 2.8, anemia that was severe, hemoglobin of 6.7, and severe thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 25. In addition, his peripheral blood showed 20% circulating blasts. So then I ask you, Dr. Daver, what additional tests should be recommended for baseline assessment for this patient? If you're suspecting AML, obviously with the blast count, what in your mind would be the appropriate workup for this patient? Yeah, so this is a pretty common uh, patient population based on age, presenting symptoms. You know, majority of our AML are above 60, 65 years of age and often presenting with uh, multi-cytopenia, so uh, low white count hemoglobin platelets. So I think the five uh, or six key pieces I would need at this point to decide frontline treatment at, at MD Anderson would be uh, cytogenetic information, especially the core binding factor. We want to make sure this patient uh, does not have inversion 16A21. In that case, we would use gemtuzumab-based therapies because it really improves outcomes in that specific subset. Secondly, of course, APL, uh, so a FISH or a pod test for PMLR, completely different treatment, chemotherapy-free, extremely good outcomes with atroarsenic. And then among the molecular, FLT3 is probably the most well-established uh, and required in this group. We have frontline approval of FLT3 inhibitors like mitostorin. So I would consider using that or even new combinations of Azaven with a FLT3 inhibitor for a 70-year-old such as giltritinib showing really, really outstanding responses and outcomes. And then we at MD Anderson do have trials with IDH1 inhibitors, IDH2 inhibitors in the frontline settings combined with Azaven as well as for TP53 we'll discuss. We are now looking heavily at the CD47 antibodies. So uh, these five different molecular cytogenetic uh, pieces of data could really change the frontline treatment, and we usually want to get them back in about three to five days. So that's where we would be communicating with our HEMPAT colleagues and saying, can we try to get this information, start screening the patients for trials. Often they're already admitted, and then help make a treatment decision. Great. 
So um, as, as uh, we mentioned then, really uh, following history and, and CBC initial workup uh, and workup for, for key laboratory tests like PT, PTT, and fibrinogen, the next step in the process is typically a bone marrow aspirate and a biopsy combined with flow cytometry, cytogenetics, and molecular analysis. This is now, of course, an integral component of working up a patient who's suspected of having a, a hematologic malignancy like this patient does. In addition, typically HLA typing is done for potential uh, transplant candidates. And uh, in addition to that, assessment of potential CNS involvement is performed through imaging with CT and MRI, uh, and oftentimes with lumbar puncture. Uh, there's also assessment of myocardial function that's performed in patients with a history of cardiac disease or symptoms of cardiac disease prior to exposing them to cytotoxic, uh, to, to, to cardiotoxic drugs and radiation to the thorax. This is a summary of the workup that uh, we typically follow for patients uh, like this, like Mr. Thomas, who is suspecting of having AML. So, of course, morphologic evaluation of the bone marrow is still a key component of the evaluation. This is done through aspirate smears, touch preparations, clot preparation oftentimes alongside trephine core biopsy material. In addition to histologic evaluation, oftentimes concurrently we're doing flow cytometry. And flow cytometry analysis is, of course, a topic unto itself, but it's important to distinguish what's needed at baseline and what's needed for follow-up. The important component of this is that at baseline we need to understand the immunophenotype of the acute myeloid leukemia so that when we do follow-up testing and evaluate for minimal residual disease, or measurable residual disease, MRD, then we have the baseline to compare to. Cytogenetics, as uh, Dr. Daver mentioned, is really an important component still. Understanding the karyotype that's associated with an AML is, is, is an important piece of information, as is FISH, fluorescence and cytohybridization, as necessary for certain um, types of, of acute myeloid leukemias. So oftentimes we're guided by the morphology to determine whether fish for acute promyelocytic leukemia or any of the core binding factors should be assessed. And of course, last but not least by any means is molecular studies, mutation profiling is uh, definitely now an important integral component of evaluating patients with myeloid neoplasia, including patients with AML for all the reasons that uh, Naval mentioned and that we will touch on. And increasingly, we have RNA sequencing components added to the, to the molecular studies to look for fusions, to look for, for additional findings that might not be detected by mutation, by mutation uh, evaluation alone. So this is an overview more for, um, uh, for you know, reference than really for us to further go through in detail. But uh, keep in mind that some of the assays or some of the diagnostic steps that we do are done rather quickly. Certainly morphologic evaluation would be 
considered a baseline time zero. And in the same day, oftentimes, especially if the flow laboratory is available on the premises, we get an initial assessment of the immunophenotype of the acute leukemia we're dealing with. And oftentimes, a full panel that includes somewhere between 16 and 20 plus antibodies would be available by the next day. Uh, in terms of routine karyotyping, that usually takes uh, a few days, uh, often between three and eight days, because that needs, uh, at least using standard methodology, the cells to grow in culture, and that takes a minimum of 24 hours after the specimen is set up. Fish testing, thankfully, is now available uh, on a rapid basis, and rapid here is considered four hours. Certainly, some of the key fish assays that we need to evaluate a patient like Thomas, if needed, can be done within a time frame of four hours. These include PML RARA and core binding factor fish assays. Now, additional assays can be performed at the discretion of the pathologist or oncologist, and those uh, usually are done, at least at most places, using more standard probing techniques that uh, would take a bit longer than, than the four hours, typically two to three days. And uh, then, of course, we reach the molecular diagnostics testing. Turnaround time there has been decreasing progressively, which is, of course, a welcome advance. Uh, so uh, currently, uh, as Dr. Daver mentioned, FLIT3 status is very important. Uh, I know at MD Anderson, we get that within a few days uh, in many places, including the University of Nebraska, where I'm at now, we also get FLIT3 status within a few days. Uh, NGS testing uh, takes a bit longer, but there are tools, there are techniques to get an initial understanding of the mutational profile within a day or two. Uh, and, uh, and that can be certainly put to use where, where possible. Uh, some places do leukemia translocation panels where there's a, um, a multiplexed look at fusion transcripts that are associated with uh, uh, known genetic alterations in AML and, and other leukemias, and those typically take a few days to complete. So um, maybe we need to know at this point uh, what the uh, results show. and. Uh, you know, this is an overview of the patient's bone marrow. Here on the left-hand side, you see the result of the bone marrow biopsy, the trephine biopsy, that shows a lot of immature cells percolating through the bone marrow. Here you see some areas where erythroid precursors can be seen. There are a few megakaryocytes scattered around. They look a little bit dysplastic. On the smears, there's uh, increased blasts, and these cells here that are large with very abnormal nuclear features and open chromatin, prominent nucleoli, of course, are our leukemic cells. But in addition, this image illustrates the fact that we have in the background also dysplastic changes involving the erythroid lineage and involving the granulocytic lineage. So taking all this together, we get a sense that we might be dealing with uh, AML, maybe with a background of myelodysplasia, because some of these changes uh, are, are, were really pronounced and, and made that uh, a possibility, made that a possibility in our mind when we first looked at the bone marrow. 
Well, karyotype uh, came back, and it's a complex karyotype. Of course, I'm not going to go through the details of that here. Suffice it to say that it includes 5Q deletion and includes 7Q deletion. Also, both uh, features that are associated with this myelodysplasia type biologic background that we have long recognized to be associated with, with high risk. Mutation profiling then followed, and results came back a few days after, showing ASXL1, SRSF2, and TET2 mutation. Now, AML with myelodysplasia-related changes, as it was called in the WHO classification previously, and is now called AML-MR, or AML myelodysplasia-related in the current WHO classification, has always been a challenging diagnosis um, and has, uh, for many years, been based on a set of factors or diagnostic criteria that uh, basically take us to a diagnosis of AML-MR. That has included in the past reliance on morphology and or cytogenetics and or a prior history of MDS or MDS-MPN. The important component here to keep in mind is that uh, this would be a high-risk type of AML, and uh, depending on the definition criteria, depending on the, on the institutions that look at this disease, uh, oftentimes it, the, this would be associated with intermediate-risk AML. Uh, in a study that was done at MD Anderson a few years ago, uh, a set of mutations were found to be associated with AML-MR, and interestingly, in that study, among other studies, it was shown, again, that uh, just basing the diagnosis on morphologic features alone, just the mere identification of dysplasia was not sufficient. This is um, another study that followed that was published uh, by Lindsley and colleagues in Blood in 2015. I'm not sure it followed. It was, it was around the same time, I think. Uh, essentially showed that there's a mutational profile that is associated with secondary AML. And here the term secondary can be also applicable to cases of acute myeloid leukemia like Mr. Thomas, uh, who presented de novo without a prior diagnosis. The notion here of secondary is the notion that these would be secondary to a background of myelodysplasia. So uh, in terms of um, kind of an overview of, of the WHO classification in that sense, uh, acute myeloid leukemia has been separated in two families. They, it was, you know, it basically it's a similar structure to what we had before, but now the entities are separated more clearly, I would say, into AML with defining genetic abnormalities and AML defined by differentiation. Now, the goal is to put as many AML patients into an entity that's defined by genetic abnormalities. And if that is not possible, then we lean back on definitions based on differentiation. Some people have argued to retain the term AML not otherwise specified for that latter category. But we have some early indications that, that suggest that understanding the differentiation of AML might actually be associated with, with certain features, but that would be beyond the scope of this discussion. 
the diagnosis of AML continues to be defined on the basis of uh, less having more than 20% blasts uh, when there are no defined genetic abnormalities. For, but for most entities with defining genetic abnormalities, uh, there is a possibility, there's a, it is permissible to make a diagnosis of AML based on that defining genetic abnormality, irrespective of the blast count. But there we hasten to underscore that there should be a careful consideration of the entire patient's picture before a diagnosis of AML is made. Um, the boundary between MDS and AML in the WHO classification uh, has been softened. Uh, based on what I just discussed, basically eliminating a blast cutoff for AML entities with defining genetic abnormalities, uh, but uh, for other types of AMLs, the 20% cutoff has been retained. In the WHO as well, uh, MDS with increased blasts too, uh, that would be MDS with between 10 and 19% blasts has uh, been retained as an MDS in terms of the umbrella entity, but may be regarded, as was determined in prior WHO classification editions, may be regarded as AML equivalent for therapeutic considerations and from a clinical trial enrollment perspective. Now, one of the, the this is really kind of to, to lead uh, to uh, uh, sharing with you that in a case like this, where we have a mutation uh, including ASXL1, which is now considered an AML-MR defining mutation in a patient who also has a complex karyotype, which continues to be one of the defining features of AML-MR, irrespective of the morphology, but the morphology provides a nice adjunct support we can diagnose this patient as having AML myelodysplasia related, which falls under the family of AML with defining genetic abnormalities. Now for more details, if you wish to look at more details, those of you who have not seen the summary of the WHO myeloid uh, uh, classification, you are welcome to scan the QR code and that would take you straight to the publication. I think I covered secondary AML uh, in the, over the previous slide, but essentially uh, it is uh, cases arising from antecedent myeloid neoplasm, by definition MDS or MDS-MPN, uh, the presence of cytogenetic abnormalities that qualify for myelodysplasia related, and those include 5Q or 5Q, uh, 5 deletion or 5Q minus, minus 7 or 7Q minus, in addition to a complex karyotype. At least those are the most, most common. Um, now, secondary AML also applies to cases that arise following prior exposure to cytotoxic therapy, chemotherapy, and or radiation therapy uh, for an unrelated malignancy. Uh, that would fall under the big umbrella of secondary AML, but in a patient like ours, uh, we, will, we are dealing with AML-MR. And this is the summary of uh, the criteria for AML-MR, uh, which replaces, as I mentioned earlier, AML with myelodysplasia-related changes. So the word changes was dropped uh, just uh, for, for clarity. Uh, the diagnosis does still require 20% or more blasts. 
uh, and and we've covered uh, the, the the additional uh, details in that regard. Uh, and here on the left-hand side, on the bottom, you can see the defining cytogenetic abnormalities, really simplified overall to include complex karyotype, chromosome five and seven uh, alterations, in addition to to uh, a few other alterations which you can see in the table. For the very first time, we we can now arrive at the diagnosis of AML-MR using uh, mutation status. And um, it is fair to say that over perhaps 90% of cases, and this is anecdotal data that has not been published yet, but comes from a large group that, uh, uh, a retrospective group that was probed, more than 90% of patients will have a combination of mutations and cytogenetic alterations that qualify them to being diagnosed as AML-MR. But for that remaining 10% or so of patients, uh, we can arrive at that diagnosis based on mutation status. And the list of genes that define AML-MR is included here. The most common of these mutations are mutations in ASXL1, which seems to really closely relate to uh, this type of myelodysplasia-related biologic uh, uh, kind of uh, background or backdrop to the AML. Um, I'd be remiss if I don't mention uh, the international consensus classification of AML, which is a proposal that was uh, put out recently. There also uh, MDS-related gene mutations and cytogenetic abnormalities uh, have been adopted or proposed to be adopted as disease classifiers for AML. I would say there's extensive overlap with the WHO. Uh, there are some minor differences, uh, but uh, overall the idea is similar. So then I'm going to turn uh, over to my colleague, Dr. Daver, and, and ask, uh, with the diagnosis of AML-MR, of course, that we arrived at based on the fact that the karyotype is complex, there's ASXL1 mutation in particular, uh, what is the prognosis and how would you approach this patient from here on? Okay, thank you. Okay, well, thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. Khoury. So, you know, at this point, I think we've got a lot of the information that we would need, including the molecular, which is usually most critical, especially rule out targetable mutations, but also now, as uh, Dr. Khoury mentioned recently, to help confirm diagnosis uh, of the AML-MR. Um, we also have cytogenetic information. And so the prognosis for these patients is, in general, not as good as those who have de novo AML. And I'm going to go through some of that data here. So this is one of the seminal papers that looked at the outcomes in different uh, groups of AML, de novo AML, uh, secondary AML with a history of known prior antecedent MDS, secondary AML who had other antecedent hematological diseases, non-MDS, and then therapy-related AML, so patients who had prior chemotherapy and or radiation for another condition in the past. And as you can see, clearly all of these groups uh, tend to uh, have a worse outcome than de novo AML, but those with the uh, known secondary AML uh, seem to have a even uh, worse outcome. 
Um, now, looking into that further, we at MD Anderson tried to really identify whether these are all equally poor group or whether some are more poor than the others. And this was a very good effort led by Dr. Montalban Bravo, one of the faculty in the leukemia department at MD Anderson, where you can clearly see that just having morphology alone may not put you in as high a risk group as those who have a really bona fide uh, AML-MR, which usually will have a cytogenetics or a clear history of prior chemotherapy radiation. You can see those two are the ones that really have the negative impact and carry the high-risk prognosis that we think about when we use the general terminology such as secondary ML. So just as uh, Joe was saying, it's really important to have cytogenetic data as well as a good history and just morphology alone is often not going to be sufficient to classify these people as AMLMR because those patients could potentially do reasonably well with standard induction chemotherapy based approaches. So you really need cytogenetics or a very confirmed history of prior chemo radiation. Uh, and that's kind of how we approach them today in our clinical practice as well. So given that this is a high risk group, we usually are uh, trying to look at new treatment options. Uh, hopefully that will be better. Uh, these are the potential options I guess one could discuss. Uh, the two that I think would be most interesting to discuss here are the options of CPX351, which in fact is approved in this specific setting of patients with a diagnosis of AML-MR based on a randomized phase 3 study that we will talk about where CPX actually improved the CR rate, CRCR rate, and OS, uh, as well as HMA venetoclax, which was not focused in this population, but it have a good number of patients uh, who did have a um, AML-MR as well. And the data there also is looking encouraging. However, that was not the key endpoint and the study was not powered for the population of AML-MR. It was for all AML older unfit population. And then intensive chemotherapy alone or intensive chemo plus VEN uh, our potential options, I probably would not be doing intensive chemo alone in this patient, but when intensive chemotherapy, there is some interesting, intriguing data emerging. Now, this patient is 70, so that would make me a little bit less inclined to do that because of the myelosuppression toxicities, but in patients below 60 or 55, definitely something we could think about. So talking about CPX first, because this agent was actually specifically designed and developed and approved in patients who have newly diagnosed therapy-related AML or AML-MRC, uh, and this was approved in around 2021. The CPX is a intensive chemotherapy formulation. It is a combination of two drugs, cytarabine and duanorubicin, which we have used historically in acute myeloid leukemia for the last five decades. But being in a fixed liposomal molar concentration of 5 is to 1 seemed to improve the bone marrow penetration as well as the leukemic cell uptake of this agent compared to just delivering separately the cytarabine and the anthracycline. Uh, and that was the preclinical data that then led to multiple phase 2 studies and eventually the randomized phase 3 study, which actually was selected to be in the therapy-related AML-MRC uh, because of the positive data in the phase 2 in that specific subset where they had better response rates and OS. Uh, meaning that this would potentially be a enriched population with benefit. 
this is now in the NCCN guidelines. Um, as you can see, it actually has a category one, which is the best recommendation that the NCCN can give for this specific group of patients, therapy-related AML, or patients with antecedent MDS, EMML, that then transition to AML, uh, or patients with the AML MRC previously, but today would be called AML-MR. Remember, this study was done about five, six years ago before the new WHO classification. Uh, and this is the only agent that has a Category 1 because it had actually a bona fide randomized Phase 3 study in that specific population. So this is the Phase 3 study um, that led to that approval and the NCCN recommendation. Uh, this was in patients 60 years of age or above. And this is interesting and important because even though the study was done in older patients above 60, the FDA label as well as the NCCN recommendations are actually for all patients because the thinking was that it's really the biology of the disease that is important rather than the age cutoff. We don't think that a 55-year-old, you know, with a AML-MR has a different biology and prognosis than a 63-year-old. And so I think it is appropriate that the drug is approved based on the biology where it was studied in this phase three. So these were patients who had a therapy-related AML or secondary AML with a clear history of prior MDS uh, or MDS-like disorder and uh, were eligible for intensive chemotherapy. So this is the other important thing to note, that these were patients who the treating physician thought were going to be able to tolerate intensive chemotherapy, looking at the aggregate of their performance status, organ function, comorbidities, and also that the patients were willing to undergo intensive chemotherapy. And I think this is important because a lot of people try to compare HMA-VEN and CPX. However, HMA-VEN really was designed and delivered for a different population. Those were older unfit patients where we as treating physicians or the patient themselves felt that intensive chemotherapy would be too toxic and did not want it. So really these are very different populations uh, when you look at it. And then the randomization was to 7 plus 3 which was the established standard of care for the last four decades for such a population who was fit and would receive intensive chemo. So here of course is the key data where you show that the median overall survival is improved with the CPX351 versus 7 plus 3. Um, the median was 9.3 versus 5.95. That's a pretty significant improvement in the AML world, especially when you look at the most recent five-year follow-up data that was published in the Lancet Hematology, where you see that there is actually a doubling of survival from 9% to 21%. This still remains a high-risk group. I think that is also clear and we need to do better, but there is an improvement especially for those who can go to stem cell transplant. I think this is really critical. Here you see the survival if you can get a patient on the CPX and to stem cell transplant in first remission, which really should be the goal for these fit patients where one has decided to do intensive chemotherapy. You can then start looking at what looks like a healthier and better chance at long-term survival with 55% long-term survival on the CPX compared to 7 plus 3. And this is interesting because you would think that if it was just a difference in remission rates, then once you get to transplant, the outcome should be similar with CPX or 7 plus 3. But in fact, there is something different, we think, in the quality or the depth of the remission achieved with CPX, which is why even after going to transplant, you do better post-transplant if you had received CPX than a post-transplant if you had received 7 plus 3. So it's just not higher response rates, but also a quality of response, we think, is better. 
The safety of this agent also, uh, I think, may explain to some extent why the patients tend to do a little bit better with the transplant. Subsequently, it seems to have lower early mortality. And in our experience, we've seen much less mucositis, GI toxicity, lower rates of severe neutropenic infection compared to traditional cytarabine anthracycline. And this could also lead to patients being in a better physical condition at the time of the allogenic stem cell transplant, which often also is important factor in the post-transplant outcomes. So looking at the different subsets to see if there was a particular group that benefited the most or the least from the CPX, this is in patients who received CPX or 7 plus 3 and then went on to receive a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. We see that both between 60 to 69 and 70 plus, there seems to be a maintained benefit. When you look at the different subsets, most of these subsets Therapy-related AML, AML with antecedent MDS, with or without a prior HMA, there seems to be some trend towards a, a benefit, although those who have prior HMA, unfortunately, don't seem to do as well. This is something that has been seen across many, many different studies. That's a very difficult group of patients with MDS who receive HMA, then transform to AML. Uh, it's often difficult to get a very good outcome, and CPX may do better than traditional intensive chemotherapy, but not by a huge deal, we still would consider it for those patients. And then, of course, the response didn't seem to matter as much. CRCRI both seem to have a uh, benefit in the favor of the CPX. So now, what about other uh, options we discussed? So venetoclax is uh, a key drug in AML. It's um, a very powerful drug working in many different combinations in acute myeloid leukemia and hopefully in the future, potentially even in MDS. There's a phase three ongoing study. And uh, this is the experience from MD Anderson where we uh, started combining venetoclax with intensive chemotherapy. Many are familiar with the approval of venetoclax with HMA. That was the first approval. Uh, the study was led uh, by Dr. DiNardo and colleagues from MD Anderson, and that is now a frontline NCCN level one um, recommendation for patients who have newly diagnosed older unfit AML. But if you look at the biology of AML and a lot of preclinical data done by our group, uh, venetoclax actually uh, is synergistic with intensive chemotherapy as well as with other agents like FLT3 inhibitors, IDH inhibitors. So here's the experience combining venetoclax with intensive chemo regimens such as FLAG, IDA, or CLIA. And you can see very, very striking response rates, the composite CR rates of 90 94% MRD negative. This is by using a multi-parametric flow cytometry at MD Anderson. And here you can see close to 85 to 90% patients achieving MRD negative. And the 12-month overall survival is 85%. So this is really outstanding data, better than we have seen in the past for patients treated with intensive chemo. But a very small subset of these patients were therapy-related AML or AML-MR. These were predominantly patients below 60. You see the cutoff there, median age of 45, 48, with no patients above 65. So these were younger, often more de novo patients, but still this response and outcome is great. Would this translate into patients who have therapy-related AML, AML-MR? Hard to say. However, we do worry that the myelosuppression will be much more significant in that population because they don't tend to recover count as well as de novo AML. HMA venetoclax, there has been recent update data where you see that it continues to show a benefit. Overall survival improvement from the VLA study is maintained, which is good, 
But the glass half empty part of this is that unfortunately, even with the improvement, the long-term survival is 23%, definitely better than ASA, which was 8%. But I think this is just the beginning of the research. We still need to do more. And again, I think when you look at this compared to, let's say, a patient who would have been fit for intensive chemo and could have gotten CPX, gone to transplant, I think there is potential maybe you could have done better for that patient uh, in that setting. So I still think we need to improve the HMA VEN and use it in those patients who are really older, unfit, or potentially combine a third drug with it to further improve the response and outcome to improve that survival curve. But I don't think this is going to be where we want to be a decade from now. So this is a good step forward but I think just the first step to really improve the outcome. So now back to our patient, 70-year-old patient, as we discussed with cytopenias, complex cytogenetics, um, molecular mutations here. Uh, AMLMR is clearly high-risk disorder, as we discussed. And I think based on all of this data, I think CPX is the one, as we discussed, that has a NCCN level 1 uh, evidence. If this patient is fit for intensive chemotherapy, that is probably the direction we would consider, whether it's with single agent or in combination with venetoclax or other agents in ongoing trials. Could HMAVEN be reasonable? The answer is yes. I did show you the data where the response rates with HMAVEN also are quite encouraging in a similar uh, range as you would get with CPX. However, there was no randomized study focused on this population. So the gold standard, I think, at this point for this population would remain CPX351. Um, and we would try to get this patient to an allergenic stem cell transplant. Usually get the transplant team involved very early. We consult them usually within the first week or so when we see them at MD Anderson. And then after two or three cycles, once the patient's in remission, proceed to an allergenic transplant. And I showed you, you could have up to 50, 55% then with a durable remission at five years, which is the goal. Okay, so here we're now going to focus on uh, some of the high-risk targetable mutations in, in AML. And let me ask you here, uh, Joe, you've done a lot of work on TP53 mutations and, and how to assess them. So when you get a, a sample from you know the leukemia clinic, uh, what are the ways you're looking for TP53 and what is the timeline to get those different data sets? Yeah. So... Thank you, Naval. So uh, certainly P53 mutation status is a very important factor to understand and, and learn about in any patient with AML. There are various ways for us to, to uh, determine that. Certainly the, the most common way is uh, the fact that P53 is part of mutation uh, panels uh, that are done by next generation sequencing. So uh, hypothetically here, we're taking our same patient and asking if their NGS mutation profiling had shown the three mutations in addition to P53, what would this mean? What would the implication be there? And uh, as we look at uh, the bone marrow uh, and as we look at P53 assessment, thank you. As we look at P53 assessment in the, in the bone marrow, in addition to mutation uh, profiling, uh, we can also evaluate P53 protein accumulation or its expression status using immunohistochemistry. This is an example uh, of, let's say, another patient, similar background, similar presentation, where the bone marrow shows a lot of dysplastic changes in the background, 
and where you have lots of immature cells uh, that could uh, often uh, be a setting that you would see in patients who have been exposed to prior cytotoxic therapy or having therapy-related AML. In cases like this, it is not uncommon to detect P53 accumulation by immunohistochemistry. In the next few slides, I will share with you some, um, some of the data that has emerged on this in the past few years in AML, including some work that was done uh, by our group uh, uh, from MD Anderson at, when I was there. Uh, so this is uh, mutation uh, profiling, uh, and again, as an example, it's not uncommon actually to see a P53 mutation as the only mutation that a patient might have. Uh, but I'm using this uh, to uh, actually also uh, remind uh, the audience that mutation profiling can serve multiple purposes. So it can serve diagnostic purposes with some of the uh, mutations actually defining some disease entities, notably NPM1. Uh, mutation profiling can also provide prognostic information with P53 being a prime example in addition to others, but also mutation profiling provides therapy guiding information. As Dr. Dover had mentioned earlier, FLT3 mutation status and FLT3 internal tandem uh, duplication mutation status uh, are important molecular diagnostic information uh, in addition to IDH1, IDH2, which, which are also targets of therapy. So all of this could be gleaned from uh, through mutation profiling. But back to P53, um, mutations in P53 are not, uh, it's fair to say, are not all equal. Uh, there are um, uh, mutations that can happen, of course, in different parts of the gene. Uh, some alterations in P53 actually can be uh, 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 non-pathogenic variants uh, of germline origin. Uh, it's not as common with P53, but there are some, some germline variants that uh, are not pathogenic that uh, that, that need to be kept at least in perspective. Uh, so these polymorphisms need to be recognized. In addition to mutation status of P53, one needs to understand what is the variant allelic frequency. How much of that clone that we're detecting as being P53 mutant uh, is actually present in the sample that we're evaluating? And that's what VAF reflects. Uh, it's a mathematical estimate. It's, it's important to keep in mind. It's not a direct measure. It's, it's, an, uh, it's an inferred uh, uh, frequency. So um, the abundance of the aberrant clone that carries a P53 mutation in a particular sample is, uh, is reflected in the VAF and, and should be kept in mind, as is the pathogenic potential of that particular mutation. In addition to both of these factors, uh, we need to remember that uh, P53, 
The P53 gene exists in, in two alleles in, in all of our cells, uh, at least in our normal cells. In, in neoplastic cells, we might have multiple copies of chromosome 17, but not to complicate matters too much, it's important to recognize that the allelic status of the P53 gene is, is important to keep in perspective. So a mutation that happens on one allele might have a different impact if the, if the, if the other allele is there or not. Uh, if the other allele is lost, arguably the impact of a, of a single mutation on the mutant allele uh, might, be, uh, might be in excess of its role had the other allele been there and be in wild, wild type. To determine this, we evaluate uh, AML patients using uh, copy number evaluation techniques. The most commonly used, of course, is FISH to determine the 17Q uh, uh, status, which is where the, where the P53 gene resides, uh, and uh, 17P status, excuse me, uh, and, uh, and, and also alternatively, uh, RACGH could be performed uh, as another tool that can determine copy number status. Uh, we did a study uh, that was published in 2022 in blood, uh, surveying over 400 patients of AML, with AML uh, with P53 mutation. And you can see uh, in, in, the, in the top left uh, portion of this uh, slide, uh, the spread of the locations of these mutations within the P53 gene most of them occur in the DNA binding domain, but, uh, but not all. Uh, also, the majority are missense mutations, but some include frame shift and nonsense mutations. Importantly, we recognized mutations that could occur at splice sites within the P53 gene. So uh, in, in doing an integrated approach using uh, allelic status, uh, P53 IHC, we were able to determine that these splice site uh, variants are actually pathogenic and impactful. Um, you can see also that uh, on, the, on the top right-hand side, this Kaplan-Meier curve showing that uh, if you take a look at AML cases that harbor just one P53 mutation and then ask what is the difference between those who have copy number loss on the other allele or a retained copy. Uh, and you see that those with copy number loss, which is the blue uh, line on the, on the plot, uh, have a uh, probability of survival that's significantly lower than those whose allelic status is intact. So all of this indicates that we really need to take a nuanced look at P53 mutation status in AML. It's not just merely saying P53 is mutant or not. It's not a binary answer of yes or no. We need to look more, and as we continue to delve more into this topic, and of course make correlations with responses to certain therapeutic approaches, we need to uh, keep that perspective in mind. Uh, this is a, um, a summary figure from that same study showing also that in addition to, so there are two P53 mutant patterns by immunohistochemistry. One leads to the accumulation of a detectable P53 signal in, uh, the, in, the, in the leukemic cells. This you would see in panel A. 
the staining intensity is uniformly strong. Uh, in pathology, we use 0, 1, 2, 3 as um, at least uh, semi-objective uh, uh, criteria for uh, signal intensity. We can also program those intensities and evaluate them use, using computer-assisted technologies for uh, improving reproducibility. And uh, when we talk about p53 mutation detected by IHC, we're talking about an increase in the staining signal that is typically uniform and typically at a three plus intensity. In at least, uh, oftentimes we use 10% as a practical cutoff. Although our study using this very large set uh, showed that 7.2% is, is the uh, optimal cutoff to, to get the best sensitivity and specificity. Um, I cannot do 7.2% by, uh, by looking at a, at a slide, but most of us use 10%, again, as a practical cutoff. Uh, however, it's important to keep in mind that about uh, between 10 and 20% of AML cases show a mutant P53 staining pattern by IHC, whereby the cells lack completely any P53 signal. You can see this in panel C here. You can see some brown signal, which I hope you can see on the larger screen, uh, that is present in some endothelial cells, some background normal cells. But the, the, the leukemic cells themselves show aberrant lack of P53 signal. That is a new, that uh, to our knowledge at the time was uh, the first time we recognized this P53 null what we call p53 null immunophenotype uh, to describe this this finding but it should be kept in perspective um, these are um, uh, also some some outcomes that uh, have been published by uh, dr short and colleagues uh, from md anderson showing the impact of p53 mutations in aml uh, based on the variant allelic frequency uh, it was a very informative study that demonstrated actually that the VAF of 40% was, was really the, the, the right cutoff where P53 mutation status uh, became uh, at least uh, more significantly correlated with, with outcomes. Yeah, I, I think just also importantly kind of commenting on, on the study that Joe showed here, I think it's really important to highlight that TP53 is not binary, as as he mentioned. You know, uh, we do really uh, try to get the information on a day-to-day -day clinical practice on the VAF of the mutations, as well as the number of mutations. And in this analysis, which had about 200 plus patients, we see that those who have a high VAF, as well as multiple mutations, are really the ones that do poorly. And which is a broad majority; it's about 80 percent, but it's not everybody. So those who have low VAF and uh, one mutation may actually do well with traditional standard intensive chemo and transplant, and you don't want to miss those patients. I think that's the key, and put them on, let's say, HMA alone or HMA uh, with uh, TP53 therapies, which may or may not be the best if it is not a truly TP53 depleted condition. So I think that's really important uh, to highlight. But for the majority, which uh, often will have the negative prognostic impact of TP53, we're still struggling to find a optimal frontline therapy. So HMA venetoclax, uh, when we first started doing the phase 1B studies about seven years ago, we were excited because the response rates numerically actually look pretty encouraging in TP53. When you look at this plot of responses 
uh, on different molecular subsets, you see that, yes, it's a little lower with TP53, but it's not bad. It's uh, around 57%. So we felt that this would hopefully transition to a good survival. But unfortunately, when you look at the survival, you see that the survival is uh, five to seven months with the TP53 mutated patients, even with HMA-VEN, as compared to 18, 19 months in non-TP53 mutated. And then we at MD Anderson said, well, maybe we could use decidabine with a 10-day regimen. There was data published from the group at WashU about six years ago showing that a 10-day regimen of decidabine seemed to have a preferential activity response and survival benefit in TP53 mutated AML in their experience. It was a small number of patients. But based on that, we then tried the combination of decidabine 10 days with venetoclax. And unfortunately, even with that combination, we do see good response rates, 55, 57% again, but the survival remained very poor at about six months. So we do not think HMA venetoclax is really going to improve the outcomes. Many are now even considering just going back to HMA alone in patients with TP53 if you don't have a novel frontline innovative treatment that we think could benefit because you're adding myelosuppression and not getting too much benefit with the venetoclax. So then one said, well, what about CPX? We know this is approved in the specific subset of patients with the AML MR secondary AML. And so a lot of those patients, about 35 to 40% have a TP53 and could the CPX work there? Unfortunately, on the subset analysis, the group that seemed to not benefit too much were the TP53 met mutated. You see the survival in those who are TP53 mutated uh, was 5.7 months with CPX with 7 plus 3, it was 5.1 months. So not really uh, much improved. Uh, so we don't think this is the best approach either currently for TP53. And then we just published this uh, review a few months ago where we look at all of the different uh, regimens that have been used over the last 15 years, many different combinations, as you can see, of HMA alone, uh, cladribine-based therapies, uh, antibody-based regimens, others, and none of them really have been able to show a clear dent or improvement. Probably the one with the best signal currently are the CD47 antibodies like megrolumab, where we are actually seeing a response rate from 40 to 60 percent and are also seeing a survival that is at least close to 11-12 months. Not great, but much better than the five or six months that we have seen historically with all of the other treatment options. And the key here is that TP53 is such a pervasive mutation. Uh, unlike many of the other mutations, you know, we have IDH, NPM1, FLT3. They impact certain subsets of AML, and we can target them effectively. TP53 actually impacts the entire tumor microenvironment, the immune system. It has broad implications on apoptosis, differentiation, cell proliferation, cell signaling. So there are now more innovative approaches that are going to be needed. We're looking at these, whether these are through immune modalities or cellular therapies, which I personally think are probably going to be the most likely to eventually work for TP53 because these are mutationally agnostic uh, or other pathways that could be leveraged. But I think we're going to have to think out of the box, cytotoxic therapy, CPX, HMA, HMA, VEN, are not really going to make a difference. So one of these innovative approaches is using a CD47 antibody approach. So the idea here is very similar to what we do in solid tumors with PD-1, PD-L1, 
But instead of PD-1, PD-L1 on T cells, we're here focusing on the macrophages, a component of the innate immune system. The idea is that if we can break the interaction between the CD47 on the uh, surface of the uh, tumor cell and SERP-alpha on the surface of the macrophage, this will reduce the inhibition to the macrophages. So just like T cells, macrophages are inhibited by tumor cells, and by blocking this interaction, you may reduce the inhibition on macrophages. The macrophages are then unleashed and are able to attack the tumor cell more effectively. So it's blocking the inhibitory signal uh, that allows the macrophages to work more effectively. There are a number of uh, different studies ongoing. This is the study that was focused on TP53 mutated frontline acute myeloid leukemia combining azacitidine with megrolumab. And here we see encouraging response rates close to about 50%. The true CRD is 33%. Uh, these are better than we have historically achieved with HMA alone or with HMA venetoclax. Generally well-tolerated therapy, although there is a early onset signal of anemia seen in the first seven to eight days, which has to be monitored and transfusions have to be given to make sure you don't have big drops in hemoglobin. Uh, but in this group of patients, we saw that especially if we were able to get them to remission and then to allo stem cell transplant, which absolutely is the critical key in TP53 mutated, we could actually see encouraging one-year overall survival above 60%. So this has now led to an ongoing phase three study of azacitine megrolumab versus azacitine placebo in specifically TP53 mutated AML. So this is actually the first large registration randomized study to be done in TP53 mutated subset. And we are hopefully uh, waiting to see good results in the future. Uh, and that will be a first step, hopefully, to improving TP53 mutated AML. It's not going to be a home run uh, based on these data, but any incremental benefit would be a good first step. And then we can see how to add cellular therapies and other approaches. So, Joe, can you uh, kind of explain here the, the plots we're seeing and how you use this in your analysis? Yeah, so, so this is another dimension, uh, novel of uh, P53 evaluation and AML. So you see on the left-hand side a baseline uh, NGS result using the, the, the viewer that is commonly used to, to evaluate NGS data, uh, showing that there is a P53 variant, a mutant P53, um, Y163C, uh, and the VAF is 70%. So if this would be present at baseline, this would be important information to keep in perspective as the laboratory looks at follow-up uh, samples from the patient to determine, uh, in part, if there's residual disease. So uh, if we take uh, this as an example, then uh, the patient can be in clinical remission, might be negative by, uh, for MRD by flow cytometry, but this is an example of a mutation in P53 that was detected by NGS at follow-up, indicating a VAF of 2%. And because it is the same mutation that was known to be present in the patient's baseline, this becomes informative information. It's important to, to remember that the sensitivity of NGS uh, needs to be, uh, you know, continues to improve, uh, but in, in using standard panels for, for sequencing, uh, sometimes, you know, this could be informative, but, uh, but, but the sensitivity can, needs to be determined by the laboratory and, uh, and shared with the, with the care team. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there is, there are data published, uh, by our group and others showing that clearance of the TP53 mutation, um, is usually associated with better outcome, whether the patient goes to transplant or not. And so this is something we, uh, request and want to look at, especially if the patients are going to transplant, the transplanters want to look at this to kind of improve or get a good estimate on what to expect in that patient, uh, versus those who have not cleared it to a high level. So, yeah, thank you for that. And then um, this, I think, is an important area of discussion. You know, when we think about MDS and AML, and I think those lines are getting blurry to a large extent now, as Joe mentioned, with different AML-defining molecular mutations uh, becoming really what helps us make the diagnosis. And I think in the future, as our understanding of the mutations, the co-mutations and how they interact with each other uh, become more and more dominant, I think this will be the way to go, is to mutationally identify and eventually mutationally treat patients, regardless of whether their blasts are 10% or 15 or 20 or 25. I think TP53 is probably the group where this is already, at least in the clinical trials and in the regulatory perspective, coming to fruition, where, you know, if somebody has 14% blast with TP53, we see that their outcome is very similar to somebody who has 35 or 40% blast. Uh, this was shown by uh, a group from Europe, Grob et al., where they showed that TP53 mutated patients who had either MDS or AML seemed to have very uh, similar outcomes overall. What was driving the outcome was the actually TP53 mutation. Uh, and in clinical practice, we do encourage the clinical trials to allow all patients with above 5 or above 10%, depending on the particular trial, who have a TP53 mutation. So we don't deny patients access just because of a couple of percent blast cutoff differences. And then uh, just finishing out with what we've been talking about, that, you know, treatment in AML today is no longer one size fits all. It's no longer 7 plus 3 or azacitidine. In fact, just about five years ago, that was really what it was. Those were the two options you had. If a patient could get intensive chemo, they got 7 plus 3. If they couldn't, then they got HMA alone. But there has now been a lot of personalization of therapy because of new drug approvals with improved outcomes. And so we really want to know at baseline the presence of core binding factor mutations. Those are the groups where addition of gemtuzumab really improves both relapse-free and overall survival. We want to know the FLT3 mutation. Uh, Midostorin FLT3 inhibitor is already approved. Quizartinib, a second uh, FLT3 inhibitor, will hopefully be approved in the near future. And we definitely don't want to miss adding a FLT3 inhibitor in the frontline FLT3 mutated AML. And then, of course, as we discussed extensively, knowing if patients have AML with MR, either based on a clear history of prior chemo radiation or meeting the cytogenetic molecular classification for AML-MR as put forward in the recent WHO. And these all have a very significant impact on selecting frontline therapy. Uh, I would add to this potentially IDH, where there are randomized studies looking at adding IDH1, IDH2 inhibitors to in intensive chemo if one has a mutation. Uh, we don't have those data yet, but that could be a fourth green box that gets added as IDH targeted. And then for those who are older, similar uh, use of FLT3 IDH mutations to select the addition of targeted therapies to the backbone of HMA-VEN. And TP53 remains a difficult group, but it's really important to identify it because those patients absolutely should go on clinical trials uh, to try and get some of these innovative therapies approved and move forward. 
Um, so just highlighting that, you know, it's not just that we want these data. They have not just prognostic impact, but they actually directly impact the therapy that we want to start in the next five to seven days for that patient, you know, in clinic or in the hospital bed in front of us. So we really depend heavily uh, and are very thankful for all our hematopathology colleagues and their efforts to get us this data. And, uh, you know, at MD Anderson, I'm sure other places we work extensively, very closely. We meet once a week for our leukemia planning for one hour, review all the new cases, and then uh, emails and phone calls every day. And uh, it's it's a great team effort. So thank you all for your help there. So with that, um, the final uh, take-homes we've already discussed, uh, key requirements today, even more than any time in the past, for interdisciplinary collaboration, communication, for understanding both sides, why we want particular mutations. I think these talks and educational summits help to see where the progress is going, why the uh, clinical hematopathologist and clinical hematolo uh, hematologist need particular information. Uh, you see now at least FLT3, IDH1 and 2 are approved. TP53 is in trials. We hope there will be TP53 directed therapies approved in the near future. And we didn't talk about it, but there's another group of emerging targeted uh, drugs called the menin inhibitors that are showing excellent activity in MLL rearranged and NPM1. So we could have at least six potential targetable uh, aberrations to select the optimal therapy for our patients. Um, and then as discussed, you know, there are therapies for this historically high risk group of patients uh, with therapy related and secondary AML. And I think this is actually just the beginning, believe it or not. I think we are going to have more personalization, more uh, targeted therapies emerging, and then eventually immunotherapies as well, which also require the identification of particular antigens to select the optimal immune therapy. So a lot in the next decade, I think, to come for acute myeloid leukemia therapy. And in the end of the day, of course, all of this is incrementally each step improving outcomes for patients so we can get to that eventual goal of cure for most, if not all, our AML in the future. And with that, I will stop and turn it over for question and answer. Yeah. So anybody from the audience want to ask? Uh, if not, we have some virtual as well we could start with. But we can, yes. It's a microphone next. It's for Dr. Khoury. So uh, for the TP53 mutation, I know it's included in the next-gen sequencing panel, but... So if we do the IHC staining up front, would that also help us uh, request the TP53 uh, mutation study? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. So uh, so our data, the, the data I, I showed, uh, especially that ROC curve, shows that there's a very high correlation between mutant P53 uh, protein expression determined by IHC and mutation status. So um, as, of course, Dr. Daver can comment as well, uh, when I was at MD Anderson, uh, we instituted a P53 screening process. So on day one, when a patient comes in with AML, in addition to the bone marrow evaluation by morphology, we add a P53 stain. And uh, it certainly takes, you know, a little bit to get used to the patterns, but ultimately it becomes a very sensitive and specific predictor as to whether this patient has mutant P53 or not. I would say, uh, you know, after a few months, there was very few exceptions. So if we see a wild type pattern, it was easy to recognize. Typically, there wouldn't be a P53 mutation. So even the negative finding becomes informative there. 
And of course, the mutant patterns usually declare themselves fairly well. There's always going to be a subset of patients where we wait a few days to, for the actual mutation, which we regarded at the time as a gold standard. Now, in my mind, P53 IHC can actually uh, be a gold standard at an institution because of its speed and, and cost effectiveness, maybe. Yeah, and I just to add to that, you know, when we do these trials, and, and some of them now are, many of them are in randomized phase three studies, we need to select the treatment early on. So, you know, if we have to send the sample and wait for a centralized lab, it could take seven to 10 days. So what we do is rapid screening with the IHC, and then we say, okay, there's a very good chance, 96, 97%, this patient will be TP53. Then we will consent them to the centralized testing because you don't want to have 10 patients wait for the two who will have the mutation, right? It's 20%. So this way it helps triage quickly and say, okay, this is the one most likely we can wait. The others can move on to the other frontline therapies they would benefit from. So absolutely. If I may add, uh, thank you, Naval, for that. Uh, If I may add also, P53 protein status, it seems, as determined by IHC, uh, seems uh, actually in our experience to be an integrator of both mutation status and copy number status. So at least in my mind, I, I feel it gives me even some information sometimes that goes beyond just the mutation status. Because you might have a mutation by NGS, but the but the IHC can show you a fairly, uh, you know, a fairly innocuous type of staining pattern that's more akin to wild type. And in those cases, maybe it's, it's a polymorphism. And we found a few cases in our study set like that. Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, it's more of a general question. In your institutions, what other hematolympite tumors you, 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 you ask for T53? I mean, I mean, I'm talking about not AML, but other entities you may be aware of. That would be good for us to know. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I can, I can uh, speak to that. Certainly, P53 uh, status is now an important factor in uh, mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, so patients with mantle cell lymphoma are, are uh, often, there's a request to evaluate their P53 status. Same for CLL sometimes, especially if the patient is showing progressive disease um yeah so it's 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 gut room of course it's used also in in solid tumors and pathology some of you might know this uh it's it's almost a defining feature of of high grade ovarian serous carcinoma and things like that high risk myeloma too mm-hmm. myeloma as high well risk myeloma too yeah. Yeah. we make now for the clinical trials nice presentation um to uh, joseph and uh, daber the uh, the common thing on the classification is the P53. Both ICC and the WHO have identified a homogeneous group of things. I was telling Joe, the sliding bar of whether you're using 10 or you're using 20, the so-called um, 10 to 20 MDS AML. I think that that is, 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 is something that we can deal with now because we can accumulate data. Just like RAPT, the, 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 the 19, whenever we went to, to from 30 to 20, the one that had, uh, you know, 21 to 19, the, those, we kept coding them at MD Anderson. So we, we called them RAPTs in the FAB and AMLs in the WHO. And therefore, <clears throat> with that, you can accumulate all the data associated with it. The Montalban Bravo data, 
which we, we did with uh, Rashmi from the Himpath side, show also, because we had coded them by hematologic, you know, by morphologic criteria, we have front, Joe, Dr. Medeiros, myself, we all call them MDS by morphology and then waiting for the cytogenetics and, and so on. That allows to do all that multivariate analysis in a, in a period from 2014 to 21. By ASH, seven years later, you have the data. So you can accumulate data um, that actually allows you to triage and now focus on maybe we can resurrect the the wild type where you have on the P53, the ones that have a little bit of the wild type, maybe you can work on those resurrecting the wild type if you intervene early. So probably P53, early intervention is going to be critical. And the other one is going to be um, uh, probably on the biopsies that are fibrotic. And you know, the, the, the these cases that are more complicated with CPX. Those cases have a very uh, marrow that is difficult to aspirate. The, the, you will get garbage flow and probably garbage molecular. But you can still paint it by IAC. And beautifully, you know, those cases that don't have CD34 but have P53 and 117, the erythroids that you're putting diver on magro don't have 34, but you can paint them in there and they still have residual disease. So nice job. Thank you, Carlos. You know, I, I think it's really important here to also mention that, you know, the allelic burden of TP53 and, and as we said, you know, those who are really TP53 dependent because in clinical trials, this is already starting to play an important role. We had a drug called APR and there was a study of azacitine APR and MDS uh, where they took all patients with just TP53 mutation and on the phase one study, it looked like response rates were encouraging uh, and then the phase three study, unfortunately, did not meet the primary endpoint. There was a trend, but the p-value was 0 0.11. Uh, and as we're looking back now, even at the phase 1b and also in the phase three, it's really those who had a high TP53 where there was the clearest benefit for APR, which was, you know, supposed to work through P53 mechanisms. And so even the clinical trials could become negative because you may dilute the population with patients with low TP53 VFs who are not truly TP53 dependent. So I think going forward, just like we do with FLT3, where we usually say people with really low FLT3, you know, may not benefit as much with the FLT3 inhibitors. We want to focus on the higher. I think P53 should not be considered binary, but more of a taking all the data into account before using it for decision making. Um, for Dr. Kuri, well, I have a couple quick questions. For Dr. Kuri, I was just wondering, as far as TP53 and search path, there's a third pattern, a cytoplasmic pattern, and I don't know if you've seen that at all. I've seen it rare once, but um, as far as TP53. We did not see that. I, I don't know, maybe maybe with AML, because the cells don't have as much cytoplasm, maybe it's hard to see. I was not aware of that. Thanks for, for bringing that up. And then I guess my other question is going along with like pure erythroid leukemia, you know, um, TP50, you know, the WHO retains that with the, the TP53, you know, and I was just wondering almost more with Dr. Daver, you know, do you wind up treating that with regards to the TP53 or do you look at the diagnosis of that? Because that one is a little bit of a tricky diagnosis for us. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough group. We don't really have a, I don't really have a good answer. We don't really have anything that works. Um, 
very effectively. We we are using the TP53 mutation to kind of put them on CD47 and other studies, but those patients have a really, really, really poor outcome in general. So uh, usually whatever we do, the goal is to get them to transplant as soon as possible if we can get a temporary remission, which also is sometimes very, very hard. Yeah. So um, thank you for your talk. You know, and I don't understand this field as well as I wish I did, but let me just ask a couple questions. You know, there are different mutations for TP53, right? Some are worse, some are better. Is there any correlation with the IHC and the meanness of the mutation, so to speak? Jeff, that's a great question. No, I, I would say um, if, if the mutation causes disruption in the homeostasis of P53 in the cell, then then it becomes impactful. And as we looked at, actually we did look at, at that particular question because there's a tool out there where you can plug in the mutation and understand in P53 and understand how pathogenic it is. It gives you a score. And it's in the, in, in the study by Tashakuri and, and colleagues. And uh, there was no correlation with P53. So it transcends, I would say, the, 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 the specific mutation perhaps transcends the allelic status and gives you an integrated uh, view of it. Uh, if I may, since, since you opened that uh, again, uh, Jeff, thank you. Um, going back to the VAF and, and the paper by Nick Short showed a 40% VAF as being the most prognostically impactful uh, cutoff. In, in the Tashakuri paper, actually the reviewers asked at what cutoff of P53 IHC mutant pattern do, did we see correlation with outcome, with prognosis? It turned out to be 20%, almost independently. If you think about it, VAF of 40% is a 20% cell burden uh, because, because the two copies of the, of the gene, at least on average, would, would be presumed to be there. So in a way, it seems that this 20% uh, is, is very prognostically impactful, correlates with the 40% VAF. So if I could just follow, I, you know, it's, it's very uh, seductive that you could do the immunostain and get, uh, if I may put it this way, get the heat from the clinicians off my back for a couple of days until the NGS is, uh, is ready. But so far, we're, so, we're talking almost entirely about burden, which is very important, but it's not physiologic in the sense that some mutations theoretically should be worse than other mutations and there's data for that. So it's hard to imagine that my clinical colleagues won't want to know that specific mutation, no matter how good a screening test like IHC would be. Dr. Daver, do you, do you think that's fair? So actually not really. So, you know, about 90% of the TP53 mutations, there's a whole list of them. There's like hundred of them have kind of a major somatic impact and, and we believe are carrying the prognostic impact. So it's not like FLIT3, for example, where absolutely the type of mutation I think really can change the selection of therapy and the prognostic impact. With TP53, most of them, if they have a mutation, those 90% at least, we don't really need to know. Now, there's a small group, absolutely, that could have a TP53 mutation, you know, that is not carrying the deleterious effect, the frame shift mutations, for example, some of these. So rarely, yes, but in general, I think for us, if we know on the IHC that there's a TP53 staining and it's likely to be a good burden, 
That usually is what we've used for clinical trial decision making for now. The FDA is keeping a list uh, as these phase threes are ongoing of all the TP53 mutations and asking that, you know, to curate that list to the ones that we're enrolling to make sure there's not over enrollment of patients who had non-impact for TP53 mutation. But so far it's about 90% have it. So, yeah. Okay, we have some questions uh, uh, here as well. We can take those while we're waiting. So would you consider CPX or VEN in a patient with secondary AML and TP53 mutation with a low VAF? I can take that. So I think both are reasonable. Um, um, I, I probably would be a little bit more inclined here towards CPX if it's a fit patient and if it's an older unfit, then HMA-VEN. Uh, the patients with a low VAF, and I'm assuming here we're talking about below 40 or below 20% even, tend to do well with both. The response rates are close to around 65-70%. CRCRI and transplant would be the way to go, and there is a good curative fraction. So whichever one I choose would really be based on the patient's fitness, uh, age, and uh, patient preferences, but I would go to allogenic transplant soon after that. Um, so let's see here, maybe... Joe, you want to take one of those? Yeah. yeah, it seems we answered a lot of the questions. There's one about the allelic frequency uh, and, and whether it's, uh, is allelic frequency calculated and reported for all tests? I presumably all NGS uh, genes covered by a panel. Uh, I would say that, that at this point is a determination that's made on a, on a lab by lab basis. Uh, it is our recommendation that VAF be provided whenever possible, whenever the, the lab team feels that the VAF uh, data can be, can be shared. Uh, this is becoming more of a trend now in, in most at least reference molecular labs and, and some uh, academic-based molecular labs. So we would advocate for that. I think this is a good year. So should we always be testing for TP53 VAF or is it a nice to have in some cases? I would say that my answer would be we should always be testing for it. I, I do think that, you know, especially those with very low VAFs and single mutations, maybe it's a small group, but that group can do quite well with traditional therapy, whatever it may have been, intensive chemo if they were young and fit, or HMA-VEN if they were older. For example, we would give them Flagida-VEN if it was a 50-year-old patient with a low VFTP53, take them to transplant with the potential two and three-year survival expectation of 60-70% versus then saying, oh, if this patient has an 80% VAF, then I'm going to put them on HMA-MAGRO or HMA-VEN-MAGRO, where yes, the response rate could still be good, but not as good. And it has a lot of... Um, uh, social and uh, ethical implications for the patients as well, right? Because we're telling them a survival of uh, 60-70% versus a 10% potential of survival. So I think it really uh, changes the whole approach towards improving survival, improving the median duration versus, okay, this is potentially still very curable. We have to go all out, get transplant involved, hit it hard, give the patient optimistic views. So yeah, for our practice, we really do always email our colleagues and make sure we have that information before we enter the decision with the uh, patient. Uh, yeah, this, uh, there's a nice question here. Can you elaborate on a typical communication of diagnostic results between pathologists and other team members in your practice? How quickly slash often are you in contact once results are in? Uh, this certainly depends on the practice settings. I would say um, 
uh, having a low threshold for communication is always good. Uh, identifying uh, high-risk aspects, uh, if, you, if you get an acute myeloid leukemia patient that turns out to be, let's say, P53 mutant, I think if you have that by IHC or if you're a diagnostic lab that does uh, NGS and has found that, then keeping a, uh, a, an open communication line with the, with the treating team uh, is, is very important. Um, uh, anything unexpected, I think, should be shared as soon as possible. In most of our institutions now, email uh, within the institution is, is uh, protected enough that that information can be shared readily and, and, and would be another fairly easy way of communicating, if not in real time, as close to real time as possible. Nawal, what do you think about this? Yeah, yeah, I was just uh, smiling, thinking at Jeff's comment of getting the heel of the clinician's back. But, but I mean, the point is, yes, it's very critical and we are in very close communication. You know, at MD Anderson, as soon as we do the marrow, we're emailing the flow team, the cytogenetics, molecular to rush results. And uh, usually, I mean, it's really been great. Within about four to five days, we get all of the results, the full cytogenetics, the fish, the molecular profile. What we've actually done also, we didn't talk about this, but we have kind of a two-tiered molecular readout. So we have what it's called a rapid molecular panel, which includes the nine or 10 key genes that are treatment decision-making relevant. So FLT3, IDH1, IDH2, JAK2, TP53, NPM1. And then, then we get that within about four to five business days. And then that's enough for us to say, okay, this patient has one of these five or six targetable mutations. We're going to put them on a targeted therapy front line. Best option, go ahead. And then we get the larger 81 gene panel, you know, that may include mutations that have a longer prognostic impact, you know, transplant or no transplant. If you have a run X1, uh, if you have an easy H2, other research things that we're looking at, PTPN11, GATA2. So this way we get the key information in five days. But yeah, I think the more compared to 10 years ago today, and I think 10 years from now, even more, the communication really has to be tight. And what's really nice is many of our hematopathologists and not just Anderson everywhere, I really know a lot of the clinical data and are really interested and integrated with what's happening in clinical trials and where things are going. So I totally feel a very palpable difference in the degree of communication compared to even seven, eight years ago. It's great. Yeah, I fully agree. And, and I think it's great also that when, when oncologists are interested and are knowledgeable about, you know, what's going on in the lab, knowing the limitations, knowing, you know, that turnaround time is, is, is a factor that uh, oftentimes, you know, we try to work against, but, uh, but there are some, some aspects of the workup that need time. So that, that common understanding is, is great. Yeah, just, I mean, yeah. both ways, you're right. I mean, even us, uh, the, the clinical investigators, I've learned a lot about molecular and cytogenetics compared to, I think, many of our peers and colleagues had known eight, nine years ago. So I think the knowledge, understanding, collaboration both ways has been great. Yeah, totally agree. Big last one. I think we're almost at time. Let me yeah. see if there's any quick one here. Um, so I think one of the questions here is... Um, any thoughts on why venetoclax appears to be active in TP53 MDS, but not as effective in TP53 AML? I think we don't know. Uh, you know, the MDS data set is much smaller. It's a single arm study right now, about 65, 70 patients, and the response rates were good. We have not seen, at least I have not seen to my recollection, the OS breakdown by different mutations. So as I mentioned in my talk about 
five years ago when we saw the response rates initially uh, in the multi-center phase 1B of HMA Ven, we thought the same that TP53 is actually not doing that bad, but it's actually not the achievement of response. It's more the duration of response and the early relapses that really hurt in the TP53 patients. So I don't think the jury is out. This is a debate we have in our group, actually, uh, whether TP53 with a really low blast could do different. Uh, we hope so, but uh, we don't know yet for sure. So we will see with the phase three, which just completed enrollment a couple of months ago uh, in MDS. So we'll have data maybe by early um, next year. I think we're at time. Um, so with that, we'll uh, close out. Thank you all for uh, joining us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XSA 860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.